Good morning. Before we get started, I'd like to make an announcement about a change in schedule. I'm afraid that uh, Professor Nilufer Goulet is, is ill and uh, she won't be attending. And uh, Professor Mamoun Fandi has gone into occultation. There's a, a debate about uh, his fate. So we're left for the first panel with only Professor Suleiman Yang. Uh, and what we've decided to do as a consequence is to collapse the two panels. So the 9 o'clock panel on Islam and the non-Islamic world will be folded into the 11 o'clock panel on American responses to Islamic diversity. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, Professor Yang fits well into the, uh, into the panel on American responses to Islamic diversity. Uh, Professor Nyang is a native of uh, Gambia. He did his uh, degrees at the University of Virginia. He was then recruited into the, into the Gambian Foreign Service. Uh, and uh, after a few years of being a civil servant, he came to the United States and, and uh, began an academic career. For the last 10 years, he's been at Howard University. Uh, in the African Studies Department. He's a political scientist with an interest in Africa, in, in uh, the development of political parties, uh, and also in uh, Islam. Uh, he's particularly well-suited to be folded into this, uh, into the uh, 11 o'clock panel because over the last uh, two years he's been involved in a project on uh, American Muslims. The 11 o'clock panel is going to be uh, our, our speaker, who will actually be the speaker for this panel now, is uh, Professor Philip Hyman, who is the James Barr Ames Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School. Uh, like Professor Nyang, uh, Professor Hyman has had a, a experience both in government and in academia. He served as Assistant, Secretary, uh, Assistant Attorney General uh, in this country, uh, and he is also uh, a prolific author, writing on criminal justice and also on uh, questions of uh, civil society and development uh, outside of the United States. He's um, been involved in a project in helping third world countries that have uh, experienced uh, violence and civil war developing uh, uh, civil institutions. And we're pr particularly delighted to have him as our speaker today. Uh, in addition, we have uh, Dr. Ziad Asali, who is the director of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Uh, Dr. Ansali is uh, a native Palestinian who uh, did de his degrees in Beirut. Uh, I think he practiced medicine in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and here he's become the director of the uh, Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which is dedicated to protecting the civil rights of Arab Americans, uh, to promoting uh, political involvement uh, of Arab Americans, and uh, 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 lobbying for the moderation of American foreign policy. Uh, after that, we'll hear from Professor Ibrahim Karawan, who is the uh, director of the Middle East Center at the University of Utah. He was a formal, former director of the uh, Institute for International and Strategic Studies uh, in London. He's an expert on political Islam. He's a native uh, uh, of Egypt, and uh, he has a reputation for being uh, uh, a very straightforward sp speaker. So uh, I think... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think uh, this, uh, uh, this will be a very candid uh, and engaging panel on uh, issues that are of concern to all of us. And without further ado, I'll turn the podium over uh, to Dr. Hyman. 
Thank you very much. And I, like the others, am pleased to be here. I'm a little, um, just a little taken back by having the assignment of describing American reactions to Islamic diversity. Uh, first of all, there are too many American reactions. Nobody fully knows them. And second of all, if anyone does, it's probably, it's almost certainly not me. But I do have some strong guesses about an awful lot of it. And I do think that American reactions are to a very large extent determined uh, within, by traditions within the United States and by political conflicts within the United States. And I feel like I know those pretty well after a lot of years of watching. The major point, just to uh, begin in, with a tip-off, the major point I'm going to make is that while we talked a great deal yesterday about the uh, politics or the motivation of identity, an awful lot of what goes on, from, an awful lot of what you see from the United States doesn't recognize that at all or have any awareness that it is trampling on claims of identity or sense of respect. An awful lot of it is just inherent in the United States political and historic process. That's going to be much of the message. I wanted to divide it. Uh, what, just one more sentence on that. What is likely to look like, uh, like disrespect or hypocrisy on the part of the United States or imperialism, I hope to show is often very largely something else. And what that something else is, is the subject of my talk today. Let me begin with foreign policy and then move to domestic policy in the aftermath of September 11th. For over 150 years, there's been a very, there's been a fluctuation in American foreign policy that is very well known to anyone who has looked at the subject at all. On the one side, there has been an argument that nations are inevitably motivated by their national self-interest, that they form alliances to further joint self-interest, that conflict is the nature of the world, conflict among nations, and that anyone who pretends, or particularly any nation that acts as if the world is otherwise, is plain the fool, is very foolish. In the United States, we associate that very directly with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. The other theme, which is most associated with former President Woodrow Wilson, but was heavily true of Jimmy Carter, and as I'm going to show to a large extent of uh, President Bill Clinton is one that is much more world order uh, focused. It believes heavily in international law. It believes in building international institutions. It is, it, it looks forward in the future. The former group doesn't look too much to the future, but it looks forward in the future to a world of states at peace, cooperative, developing, 
most recently in the world, if you count the last 50 years as recent, concerned about human rights. Note that either of those, either of those views can be more expansive, can be more threatening of other nations in the world. Neither one uh, can claim title to that. Uh, the view of a just world, the search for a just world and a fair world, uh, led us into a war, a minor war for us in Somalia, trying to deliver food to starving people in a country we had no national interest in whatsoever and didn't particularly want to be there. It, may, it led us to a substantial war in Bosnia on behalf of the Bosnian Muslims to protect them against the Christian Serbs. It led us into a substantial war on behalf of the Kosovars, Muslims, against, again, the Serbs. It led us to uh, a war in Haiti where we had a little bit of interest because a lot of Haitians were coming in boats to the United States and we didn't like turning them around in little boats. But once again, we were trying to replace a very bad regime with a very good one. The point here being simply that uh, you may easily find the strain of American foreign policy that leads towards world, uh, to, towards a better world and seeks a better world and a more cooperative world. You may easily find that the more expansive and the more ready to use military power. It could go either way. President Clinton has publicly expressed <coughs> to the Rwandans his regret that we did not intervene in Rwanda to avoid a massacre of between 500 and a million people, a genocide. Um, we, Republicans, and pretty soon I'm going to start talking about Democrats and Republicans, Republican advocates of keeping our eye on national interests have been very critical of that human rights strain of President Clinton's policy. They think we're wasting our time, energy, people. Now, both strains are very real in the United States. President Bush uh, strongly represents, perhaps more strongly than anyone we've seen recently, the strain of national interest, a world, a world that is inevitably a world of conflict, alliances of convenience, we look hypocritical when strong national interests of a national security or economic nature override our interests in a better world. Um, we have sometimes, perhaps often, too often, supported repressive governments and tried, and even on occasion, tried to overturn unfriendly democratic ones. I have to go back to Guatemala and Chile for that. But it's not hard to find repressive governments that we have supported when they looked critical to our national interest uh, in security or economic well-being. Uh, sometimes this, uh, what makes us look hypocritical is simply the operation of subnational institutions. And my wife Anne and I were, have been working in Peru uh, talking to them about their internal security agency, how it was misused, dangerous, corrupt under its prior leader, Montesino, which they all, everybody in Peru agrees, 
and what they can do to prevent that in the future. The Peruvians, like some of, uh, like people from the Muslim world too, uh, were quite uh, outraged by the fact that our agencies, in this case the CIA, worked very closely with Montesino, a person that everyone now agrees was corrupt, dangerous, brutal, a very bad influence in Peru. But he was in power. If you are the CIA and you want information about Peru or the FARC guerrillas in next, in next door Colombia, you talk to the intelligence chief of Peru. And that inevitably supports him, by the way. It inevitably provides him with a form of support. You have to trade. Even his contact alone is worth something. But this sort of uh, national interest theme will come out even at subnational levels. We tend to fluctuate with changes in administration. In, on the whole, foreign policy in the United States, as I think in almost every country, is largely in the hands of the executive. Uh, the Democratic administrations have, for a good period of time, been much more interested in creating a healthy world. The Republican administrations have been more interested in creating a safe, secure, uh, economically beneficial world. For, uh, if this administration is experimenting with an expansive, and I think it is, an expansive view based on the notion that we have a world of conflicting national interests in which it's foolish to uh, think or act otherwise, it doesn't mean, because we fluctuate, it doesn't mean that we should be thinking of how long did the Roman Empire exists, the United States should look at 500 years of the Roman Empire and that this will not last more than 500 years, this sudden uh, affection for world power, or the British Empire only lasted however many years the British Empire lasted. This is very, very, very likely, anyone want to bet after I speak, I'll be happy to bet with them, to last until the Democrats come into office. <coughs> very likely to last until then. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that it's not a concern, but it does mean that it's part of our politics, pressed a little bit to the extreme. Uh, now, moving to Islam and diversity. Uh, neither Democrats nor Republicans, I believe, see the variations in Islamic belief that were discussed yesterday. But both and this is important, assume they are there. If you ask for a description of uh, fundamentalist, uh, traditional, and modernist Islam, they, I think that most people, not people in our State Department could give one, but I think most people in the administration and certainly most people in the United States wouldn't know what in the world you were talking about. If you ask me before we get before the, I get too many smiles, because it, it is a smile subject, if you ask me to describe the difference in belief between Methodists and Baptists, two very large Christian groups in the United States, I couldn't. And if you asked anyone in the United States to describe the difference between Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed Jews, you better pick someone who's Jewish. So this is... Uh, this, 
you know, the Americans have not gone far into looking at other people's religion, even within the United States. I think Americans don't broadly blame Islamic, uh, the Islamic world for terrorism. I think Americans do believe that it's the present source of threat, but, not, but don't believe that it's the, uh, that anything like the whole Islamic world is a source of threat. Indeed, we may uh, go too far in the direction of separating off, in President Bush's terms, uh, the good guys from the bad guys, acting as if there isn't a continuum of belief and resentment and motivation on the Islamic side as there is on our side. In other words, there is a continuum, but I think Americans are much more likely to think of a relative handful of dangerous, bad, unequivocally bad people as terrorists and, and the Muslim world as a, a totally respected world of religion as much as anybody else's religion is, expected, is respected. Americans do believe that um, states we thought were friends have, have supported media and schools preaching hatred. And this has, I think, substantially affected our relationship with Saudi Arabia. I think, they, I think there's a widespread belief, and certainly uh, including a governmental belief, that Saudi Arabia was providing support knowingly for very hostile, for schools preaching uh, great hostility, and also for organizations planning terrorism. Americans, and I'm trying to be descriptive here, this, this is not my way of saying I, I'm trying to describe as well as I can. I'm quite sure that Americans don't believe that we have mistreated the Arab world or the Muslim world. Uh, a, major, a, a major point to focus on. We don't feel that we're occupying any Arab land in Saudi Arabia, and of course we're not anywhere near uh, Mecca or Medina. Uh, we don't feel responsible for, perhaps we should, but we don't feel responsible for improving the governments with which we deal. Uh, we feel that's an, an internal matter. We have, Americans have supported the existence of Israel for 55 years and are not about to change. Now, that's the existence of Israel. I think the, that Americans are wide open, not particularly the present administration now, but I think Americans are wide open to all other questions about borders, compensation of refugees, uh, uh, capital city. I think all of those are open, but I don't think the existence of Israel is an open question in American foreign policy for either party. Uh, most Americans regard terrorism as unequivocally evil. Uh, so this, uh, and this crosses party lines. It, um, my wife again reminded me, to, uh, Timothy McVeigh is a good example. We executed Timothy McVeigh very promptly for blowing up the Marah Federal Building in Oklahoma City and killing hundreds of people. We didn't care to understand his motivations. Again, I'm not defending this, this is, but this is very American. It's American when we talk about the death penalty. It's American when we talk about 
having more people in, in jail, particularly for drugs, than any country in the world, in prisons. We didn't, we didn't care to understand Timothy McVeigh's motivations for his actions any more than we cared to understand the Serbian motivations for using rape as a weapon of ethnic cleansing. We just regard terrorism as kill, the killing of civilians for political reasons as uh, unequivocally bad. Uh, there's no disposition to sympathetically understand people who threaten to kill American civilians, and, it's, and, and we're going broader on that, people who threaten to kill civilians anywhere. That, of course, is compounding uh, the issue of America's relation with Israel and uh, the Islamic nation's uh, feeling for, for Palestine, as, men, as many, many Americans including me, do. Um, we don't believe, I think, most people don't believe that ending our relationship with Israel, if we would do it, would end the danger. President Clinton was actively involved in pressing Israel to return to the 1967 borders while al-Qaeda began planning the attack on the World Trade Center on the very days. Uh, we can understand, with some, with, with some difficulty, because we're a little blinder than most people, being resented or even hated, but not being violently attacked. Um, I think a, a typically American reaction would be, uh, okay, so you hate us, or they hate us, or somebody hates us. That doesn't justify causing people to leap out the window of, on the 100th floor. It doesn't justify it. Okay, let me switch to within the U.S. Uh, so the picture there without the United States, outside the United States, is a great hostility to what is assumed to be a very small number of terrorists, inadequate attention to uh, the to sort of the, the social and cultural, as well as the other parts of the environment with which the from which the terrorists come. Uh, a commitment to Israel that's not going to shift, a foreign policy that will shift sharply over time. Now, within the United States, here what's played out is, is not the same tension between a world, a better world foreign policy and a national self-interest foreign policy, but a conflict between a set of rules that we've set up to guarantee the safety of religious and political groups and a feeling of internal danger. Uh, so, uh, the first being civil liberties. The second, uh, a desire to a, a worry about public fears and real fears. The crucial rules that I'm going to describe to you and describe how they've bent or not bent involve religious freedom, tolerance, and mutual respect, non-discrimination on the basis of race, religion, or national background, guarantees against government intrusions on privacy, and guarantees against government's intrusions on liberty by locking somebody up. All of these have been under pressure, but for many, for most Americans, 
And for the political figures in America, it's that tension <clears throat> sort of, of typically American tension and concern that describes most of what's going on in the United States. I have some underlying facts which are interesting, and I wanted to give them to you, about Muslims in the United States. Uh, the fact that there is a very large Muslim population in the United States, and it's one of a number of minority religious populations which are highly valued, shapes our foreign policy as well as our domestic policy. In, in the U.S. as a whole, about 270 million people in the United States, uh, the, this, by the way, there were a series of polls taken uh, in, 19, in 2001, but before September 11th, so they weren't affected by September 11th, they were taken by a combination of academic and Muslim groups. And here's what the figures look like. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. I, I brought them with me, so better be careful about correcting me. Um, in, in the United States, there are about 12 million uh, non-Christians. I'm surprised it's so few, 4%. It, by the way, turns out to be typically American to vastly overrate the number of minority, the numbers in minority groups. There, there were figures taken on that, too. The Muslim population, including children, would be about 3 million. There's a dispute as to whether it's 2 million or 3 million. It's in that neighborhood. Or 1% of the population, and increasing very rapidly. Something like 20% increase in the last 10 years. Of these, 25% are Arab Americans, 30% are African Americans, and 33% are from South Asia. Uh, of, Arab, of Arab Americans, uh, only 25% are Muslim. 75% uh, of the Arab Americans in the United States are not Muslim because they immigrated uh, for, in part for that reason. 30% of the Muslims in the United States were converts, mostly about 70% African Americans. Uh, the Muslim population is concentrated, which means it's more politically effective or can be more politically effective in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Detroit, and Texas, and worships in somewhat over 1,200 mosques. Again, somebody counted them, 1,209, uh, which are linked by dozens of different associations and councils. 10% uh, of the Muslims in the United States report that they believe they should not be involved in American institutions, 90, 90%, very high percent, report that they should be involved heavily in American institutions. Um, now, I said before, the, you, I think you have to assume that the American public makes very few distinctions other than to feel that the Muslim population, like the Buddhist population, like the Hindu population, like the Jewish population, uh, like a, a, a set of about seven religious populations that make up that uh, what percent did I say? Uh, Four percent are very much to be valued. I mean, the country wants to be tolerant, and it has a long tradition there. Uh, but there's a difficulty here, and the difficulty is that uh, Americans also believe, and, pro and correctly, that most of the danger to terrorism 
now comes either from, will come either from somebody sympathetic to the Arab cause or somebody sympathetic to a radical Muslim fundamentalist cause. And that means that there's a tendency at the same time that we hugely value diversity, the diversity in our population and brag about it and exaggerate it and want to protect religions and want to protect privacy and want to protect uh, security and, and liberty. At the same time, there's a natural and logical tendency to focus, if you think this is where your terrorism is coming from, on those who are most passionate about uh, the Arab cause or most passionate about the Muslim cause, or both. Um, the trick is, what can you do then? Well, we have a lot of rules that we've developed over time as to what you can do in situations like this. And they're modified in minor ways, but not in major ways. Um, first of all, we have very sharp rules against that don't permit us to punish as a crime either uh, recruiting or joining an organization, even if it's even if the recruitment uh, is to engage in a militant way uh, and violent way to further the cause of the organization, unless it encourages a quite immediate form of violence. We've had that since about the First World War, and we have leading decisions on both. Uh, Britain, we don't, in other words, have a, a crime of incitement. And Britain has a crime of incitement, which it has found it very difficult to use. Israel has a crime of incitement, which it has used, uh, probably with some regularity. We don't have a crime of incitement. We don't have a crime of membership. We do have crimes of supporting uh, with money or with muscle or with whatever uh, terrorist organizations. And they have to be prescribed. The more interesting question is about investigation. The more interesting question is about monitoring groups. Because the fact of the matter is, if you start monitoring a political or a religious group, you're very likely to discourage membership. It, it's almost inevitable. People don't like being watched. People worry about being watched. We've had since um, for the mid-1970s, we've had for about 25 years, rules that say that the FBI cannot open an investigation of an organization unless it is presently planning a dangerous crime, a violent crime. That violent is the word they use. And unless they open an investigation, they can't keep files. That's a separate rule. They can't make files or keep files. Uh, that means that it can't open an investigation of a mosque or a pro-Arab group, a pro-Palestinian group, uh, no matter uh, what the, no matter how spirited, vigorous, uh, inciting the language is, unless the group is calling for 
uh, is presently planning an act of a violent crime, a criminal act of violence. Now, that sounds a little, right off the bat, that overstates it just a little because we've managed to hedge in ways that practically nobody but I know, and that is for a temporary period of time you can see whether you can investigate in order to find out whether the, the organization is planning a violent crime. 30 days, 60 days, something like that. But if you don't find that they're committing a violent crime, no files, and close the investigation. Attorney General Ashcroft modified that in uh, ways that I think are hard to quarrel sharply with. He said that if the group was, if, if the group was holding meetings open to the public, the FBI could attend the meeting, even though it had no reason to believe that they were planning violence. And uh, if, the, um, if, if the group was using an open website to seek members, the FBI could uh, go onto the website and find out who's saying what. Attorney General Ashcroft also modified, but that's all. Beyond that, nothing. It's a closed meeting. Can't go. Can't attend. Can't get an informant to go. As to electronic surveillance, you would have to, for electronic surveillance, you would have to believe that a group was engaged, was working for a foreign party or power. Foreign political party would be fine. And was engaged in international terrorism. And that, again, would require planning violence for political purposes. And you'd have to go before a court. The FBI would have to go before a special court that's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court made of regular judges, made up of regular federal judges to get permission. Uh, Attorney General Ashcroft also reduced the restrictions which we had, which gave favored treatment to political and religious groups, said that even if all these other conditions were met, you couldn't do certain things with religious and political groups, like recruiting an informant. He relaxed those, too. Um, the major error, so that it seems to me that there hasn't been a major change, that there remains, along with, I'm sure, a, a large fear and amount of public um, sort of stupid prejudice generated by September 11th, there remains a lot of protection against governmental activity. And uh, President Bush, to his credit, has immediately went to the mosque on Massachusetts Avenue, uh, stated that he wanted no discrimination, he wanted no attacks on Muslims, and ordered the Justice Department to proceed against hate crimes very vigorously, which I think they are doing. The biggest and most troublesome action has been in the area of aliens, uh, particularly visitors to the United States. Both I've heard from some of you about the terrible problems of coming into the United States, and I've heard this before. If you're coming from an Arab country, we have special rules for uh, a careful examination of males between the ages of 18 and 45 coming from a list of Arab countries that matches the list associated with September 11th, I believe. And we have, I think, wrongly and excessively used 
the powers of the Immigration Service to detain people. Again, a liberty that we care very much about, to detain people uh, and not just deport them, detain them for questioning and to make sure that they're not committing crimes, the great majority of whom have not been dangerous in any way. Showing Americans' tolerance and sense of non-discrimination, we have detained a number of Israeli on that ground, too. Why, I don't know. Well, let me stop there. The picture I'm trying to give you is a United States reacting to terrorism as if it's a crime, not as if it's a characteristic, a, a, a major characteristic of the, uh, of certainly Islam or of the, it, it's, United States is reacting as if it's a form of behavior that has become cop common in the world today. We have generalized it, and we, it, it has become very difficult to be a member of the Irish Republican Army today in the United States, much more difficult than it was before September 11th. Uh, we have, it's become much more difficult to be a member of, although it was always difficult, Hezbollah, Hamas, or Islamic Jihad. We have generalized the war on terrorism. Uh, I think we make few distinctions among uh, the, uh, along the lines of the diversity within Islam, but I think we recognize that distinctions are there and, and certainly regard the threat as coming from a very minor part. Uh, it, within the United States, I think we are cautioned by the fact that we greatly value a group of three million American citizens, the Muslim population. And you have to add many more if you add in the Arab Americans. And I think we've made fewer changes than it at first looks within the United States. I think the major problem has been in our handling of aliens. With that, let me stop. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Harmon. Now we'll turn to the, uh, the panelists, and I turn first to uh, Professor Nyang from Howard University. Thank you very much. Good morning, all of you. Uh, it's with great pleasure that I uh, join my colleagues here in addressing the Muslim presence in American society. First of all, let me just respond quickly to the statistical uh, formulation from uh, our distinguished speaker. We do have three databases, as he correctly pointed out. You do have uh, statistical data presented to the American public by studies that were done by some Jewish groups in the United States with respect to Muslims in America. And there's a tendency to downplay the Muslim numbers in the United States. And then, of course, you have a recent study that came out with strong resistance from the Muslim community uh, published out of Atlanta based on a, over 50 years of identifying Christian and later Jewish representation in the American population. They came out with 1.6 million Muslims who attend mosque. Now, if their figures are correct, that means to say 80% of the Muslims are not counted in that number because most of the Muslims don't go to mosque who are Americans. 
uh, just like Christians don't go to church, and uh, you have Christmas Christians, uh, just like you have Eid Muslims. So uh, you have another statistical data that came out from our study, and this is what I'm going to share with you, really. Uh, that is Muslims in the American Public Square, which is based at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in the Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding. I'm a professor at Howard University, but I have a long-standing interest in Islam in America. I wrote a book on Islam in the United States of America. We came out three years ago, before 9-11. And uh, the reality here is the Muslim in the American public square is part of a seven ethno-religious studies that are being done concurrently by scholars who are Catholics, Jewish, Christian fundamentalists, or evangelicals, mainline Christians, uh, African-American Christians, Latino Christians. These are the seven uh, research projects that are being funded by Pew Charitable Trust based in Philadelphia. And our report, which is going to come out next year, would publish two volumes that will address Muslims in American public square. And the scholars who wrote for us are American Muslims and non-Muslims who have been writing about Islam in America. And uh, the Statistical survey that was done for us was put out by Zogby International, one of the uh, leading uh, pollsters now in America, alongside Harris Poll and Gallup, as we used to know, in America. Now, the study that was done for us by Zogby International come up with some of the breakdown that uh, Professor Hyman pointed out with regard to the ethnographic uh, uh, distribution within the Muslim community. Up until the late, seven, late 80s, when you have a large influx of people from South Asia, the African Americans were the largest number of Muslims, and you have a negligible number of white Americans who became Muslims in the United States. Now, what the Zogby poll proved to us is that now you do have, just before 9-11, maybe a couple, two, three years before 9-11, a larger number of Muslims who are from South Asia, primarily Pakistanis, as opposed to, say, Indians and Bangladeshis. And then, of course, you have about 25% plus who are of Arab <coughs> origin. What I'm going to do for you, really, is to give you the historical and intellectual origins of the Muslim community in America, and then I will talk about American opinions on and attitudes towards Muslims in America before 9-11 and post 9-11. So within this span of time allotted to me, bear with me as I really try to explain to you the composition of the American Muslim community, how they got here, and who they are in the American uh, situation here. Islam in the United States has a history that goes back long before Columbus, if you are to believe two sources. One is Leo Weiner at Harvard, who wrote in the 20s, suggesting that there were Muslims who came to America before Columbus. And this was based on linguistic studies that he did. And of course, at the time, he was going against the canons of American historiography, because the canon was already set, and here was an American linguist who was now beginning to provide evidence suggesting some Arab Muslim presence in America before Columbus. Now, the other point to be borne in mind is the fact 
that you have Muslims who came here during the slave period. 10 to 15% of the slaves who came to America were Muslim. This is not part of American historiography, but now increasingly we have evidence to that. The third wave of Islam in America was the coming of Arabs here. And of course, after the construction of the Suez Canal, you have Arab Christians coming to America, and they were followed by the Muslims. There is always the story of the Arab from Beirut who wanted to come to America, and he asked an American captain, Captain, do they have mosque in America? The captain said, no, he jumped off the boat. Because he was afraid of disappearing in the ocean of names and faces in American society. But, as history would have it, many of them will come to America. And of course, these are the people I call the early Arab immigrants who came to the United States. And these Arabs and Jews, Arab Christians and Muslims and Jews in New York City would add to one of America's trivia. The first American president ever to have an Arab Muslim name was Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was given the name Harun Rashid because he was the chief of police in New York City before he became president of the United States. And of course, George Bush will be the second one to have, George Bush Sr., will be the second one to have an Arab Muslim name. And that is after the Gulf War, when the Kuwaitis, learning about this historical analogy to uh, Teddy Roosevelt, called George Bush Ibn Abdullah Bush. And of course, uh, Abu Abdullah Bush. And now George Bush the second is now called Ibn Abdullah by Muslim students on campuses. I just give you this. Uh, historical narrative in the sense that the Arabs came here in large numbers after the Muslims, after the Second World War. The Pakistanis or people from British India came here and of course they also contributed to the development of the American Muslims to the point that you have a phenomenon in America can, which can only exist in America and that is you have a group called Punjabi Mexicans. These are people from Punjab who came to America and they intermarry with Chicanos. And as a result of their uh, migration in western part of the United States, you have in America this particular group called Punjabi Mexicans. They have names like Juan Gonzalez, I mean, you know, like, uh, or Juan Ahmed. Only in America will they have this. Now, as a result of this development, the Muslim community is very diverse. You have 80 nationalities in the Muslim community in America, from A to Z. Algerians, Afghans, Albanians, alphabetically, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, Palestinians, all the way to Zambians. They're all in America here. And to the point that American Muslims talk about the American Muslim diversity parallels only the Hajj. There's no other Muslim community in the world, except maybe in Britain, where you will have Muslims from all over the world in one small piece of real estate. And this is the uniqueness of America. So when we talk about America being a microcosm of the planet, if you're an alien being from another galaxy doing anthropology in America, I mean, you will find that the American Muslim community is a microcosm of the Muslim world, just like America is increasingly trying to be a microcosm of the world. That becomes very important in terms of history. Now, in terms of the intellectual origins of the Muslim community in America, what we have to take into account is that all Muslim thought exists in America. From Sufis, Sunnis, Shiites, and all the different groupings within all of these, they're all in America. So if you are really interested in studying the Muslim world, you don't have to go anywhere else. Just stay here. Identify the different groups, and they're here. 
Now, what is very interesting is that the American democratic tradition has created fertile ground for Muslim interrogation and Muslim debates, something that is woefully lacking in many Muslim countries today. It is only in America that you will find Sunnis and Shiite intellectuals jostling and interacting without any kind of sectarian bigotry. There are some extremists in both camps, but they are a minority. Now, another interesting development in America is the fact that in the United States today, the American Muslims are beginning to engage Jews and Christians intellectually, something that has been put an end to since the collapse of Spain, Muslim Spain. And you now have new interrogation, new dialogue going on in America between Muslims and Christians, Muslims and Jews. So when you talk about American opinions on and attitudes towards Muslims, what you have to recognize is that in America there are three fundamental groups that are not very comfortable in living as Americans with Muslims. The Christian right, the Jerry Fowells of Lynchburg, you know, Pat Robertson, and many other Christian writers, they see Muslims as theological competitors in the American marketplace of ideas. And of course, Muslims constitute a great threat because as American society becomes increasingly secularized, to the point that you have American society very much driven by intellectual considerations on the secular side, by the writings of Rawls, John Rawls, with regard to separating politics from religion, to the point that you now have the primacy of secular thought as opposed to metaphysical thought in the marketplace of ideas, Muslims become the bull in the china shop. Very much like the fundamentalists. So the Christian fundamentalists uh, in this, to put it in British English, they are sharing the same premises philosophically as the Muslims, but they occupy different premises. So, I mean, you know, like, uh, to make a point here, they, 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 this is one thing that's happening. So it's very funny kind of development. And, of course, those who are very much opposed to Muslims tend to come from the Christian right because they see Muslims as theological competitors, and they, of course, carry the old crusader mentality towards Muslims. The second group that is very much opposed to Muslims in America and who are not very comfortable because they are all competing, and they have this, what I call, that Abrahamic sibling rivalry, are some of the uh, pro-Israeli Jewish Zionist elements in America who f have this sibling rivalry with the Muslims because they feel that American Christians, who are the overwhelming majority, 90%, as Professor Hyman, may very much pay attention to the Muslims more so than. And 9-11, ironically, has exacerbated this tension. Because 9-11 has given Muslims greater visibility in America than they ever anticipated in their life in this country. Because there is no American media today around the country where Muslims are not known now. Muslims are known in America. There are a lot of Americans who didn't know that there were Muslims in this country. Now, there's no American today who listens to newspapers or, uh, uh, I mean, read newspapers or listen to television and radio who don't know that they are Muslims, of course, in a negative sense. But when we talk about American opinions on and attitude towards Muslims, we have to recognize that before 9-11, those groups, such as the Christian right, those who are strongly in favor of Israel and feel that Muslims might very well moderate or change American policy. And then you have a third group who are also ideologically at loggerheads with Muslims in America, and they feel very uncomfortable dealing with Muslims. And these are the secular humanists in American society. And you may find them in England and in France. And this creates a problem in terms of American society. But 
in the academy the debate is on. And of course the Muslim intellectuals are engaging all three of these forces in American society as they negotiate their identity in American society. The last point I want to make, and of course I'm, I'll be ready to respond to some of these issues when we open up. The last point I want to make is that since 9-11, what has happened really is 9-11 has done for Muslims in America a number of things. One is the myth of return has been exploded for good. Many American Muslims entertained the idea that they were coming to America and they'll go back home, striking it rich. This has been the case with many of the Muslims who came here in the 19th century and the 20th century. Many Lebanese and Syrians and other Muslims from the Arab world thought that they would come strike it rich and go back to America. There were Irish who had the same kind of understanding. There were many other Europeans who had the same understanding, but in the end they stayed in America. That's why I tell Muslims, Americans, if you want to know whether you're going back home or not, just listen to the accent of your children. Then you know you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and this is precisely what has happened in America. So the, mid, the unintended consequences of Osama bin Laden's action is the solidification of the Muslim identity in America. Because what has happened is those Muslims who used to have this idea that they were going back home have now found themselves frozen in the American reality, because they are part of the American reality, and many of them, of course, through their accent, through their mannerisms and their behavior, they are very much Muslim. Now, this leads me to my last point, and that is the Muslim presence in America has created some philosophical, political questions, and uh, Professor Hyman addressed some of these issues with respect to American law and how civil liberties are protected and defended in the United States. I don't want to preempt my friend here, but I'm sure he's going to raise some issues with You're regard to good job uh, what, has, what has happened. What I want to show here is that, you see, in the West, Western intellectuals are being challenged, and I'm very happy to be here, because the debate is on. Both at the theological level and at the secular level, Muslim intellectuals are now going to confront their colleagues in the interfaith movement, as some of us have been doing, dealing with Jewish intellectuals, demonstrating beyond reasonable doubt that you are very much at home with the Tanakh, and you are very much at home with the Gospels, and you are very much at home with the Quran. So when it comes to intellectual discourse, you can negotiate very well with these people, something that never happened before until America. That's one of the interesting things about America. It's happening in Britain, it's happening in France, and it's Germany. Now what is happening now at the secular level is that the children of the Enlightenment are now engaging the children of Abraham in a very interesting way, something that is just beginning to happen. Because if you look at the Western experience since the American Revolution, we have three, we have four revolutions before the Iranian Revolution. We had the American Revolution, which abolished kingship. So Americans became the first human beings who have successfully experimented for 225 years without a king. Although some people will say return of kingship is manifested in the two Bushes, just like in the, in, the, in the two Adams in American history. But that's an aberration in history. The second revolution that took place is in France, where they abolished the church in terms of being the dominant force and kingship. Then we have a third development in the Soviet Union, which came with the abolition of the aristocracy and the capitalist class. So they went after three the king, the church, and the property owners. The Iranian revolution gave us deja vu. The French revolution has created a problem in terms of how you respond to the hijab. 
And I have said this at a conference at the Library of Congress to some of the scholars from the Sermon, that the difference between America and Britain on the one hand and France is that the British and the American experience, different as they are in terms of their attitude towards kingship, the British system has made it very clear that you can wear the hijab in England and not be disturbed, even if you go to school. So in America. But in France, because of laïcité, wearing the hijab is a threat to French unity as far as the Cartesian mind is concerned. But what I told French scholars, and I'm going to say it here, is that there is a fault in this logic. Because what is interesting is in France, the la prosecuting the laïcité notion has created a contradiction. And the contradiction can only be rationalized by history, not by logic. In France, if you wear hijab as a Muslim kid, you are stigmatized and penalized by the French. But if you're a Catholic nun dressed in the same sartorial elegance as the hijabi, you're allowed to survive. Why? Because the hijabi is an ugly reminder of the French defeat in Algeria. Whereas the Catholic nun is a reminder of what happened. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to say the source of my figures were uh, a poll sponsored by the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Islamic Society of North America, the Ministry of Iman W. Dean Mohammed, and the Islamic Circle of North America. And I, I just want to take my prerogative as the, um, as the moderator here to uh, tell you something happened to me when I was in France visiting a friend. Uh, his wife uh, was the daughter of a French general, and uh, we were discussing this issue of, uh, uh, of women wearing head covering. And she told me that uh, they didn't allow women to wear a head covering in school because Fr France is a secular country and having religious symbols in the school is unacceptable in a secular country. And I said, uh, does, that mean that, uh, does that mean that the Catholics can no longer wear a crucifix in school? And she said, we are French. <laughs> <laughs> I'll now uh, pass the, uh, the microphone uh, to Dr. Asali. Thank you very much. Uh of course, the disadvantage of uh, coming after both of you having discussed these issues is that I cannot possibly come up with anything original. Well, I probably wasn't able to come up with that anyway, so I might as well uh, just address some of the issues. Uh, there are two huge issues that we're dealing with here. One is uh, foreign policy considerations as they apply to what is called the Islamic world, and the second is the... Uh, domestic uh, application of uh, uh, law and uh, general attitudes towards things Arab and Islamic in this country. Uh, I must say that uh, I feel exceptionally uncomfortable with covering, you know, the issues that we're dealing with uh, under the rubric of Islam as a religion. Uh, it is very troubling for, for, for the subject itself actually being so broad as to the lives and the happenings and the, and the development or lack thereof, education or lack thereof of masses of humanity, 1.2 billion people, to characterize them all under Muslims and how do we study them. Uh, of course, one of their attributes is that they are, the majority of them are, are Muslims, and there are so many others. Uh, to try and find an answer to the questions that we deal with 
about the Islamic world today in the text of Islam, in theology, in metaphysics, is akin to understanding the Crusades if you studied the Bible or the scriptures. And I think we should keep that in mind. And I do believe that for the past year there has been an overdue emphasis in the literature here uh, about Islam as a religion. Let's find out about it so that we understand these strange and, and, and unusual people who are doing these terrible things to us. There is, I agree clearly, with, with the division of, of you know, fundamentalist Christians, fundamentalist or uh, Muslims, and, and, uh, and uh, right-wing uh, Zionist Jews. All of them have an, an interest in aggravating this conflict between the Islamic world and the West. Uh, you might uh, call them clashes. These people are who call for the clash of civilizations. I put them at one end and put the majority of us on the other end. Uh, I would not, I would resist very much to having us all defined by our religions and ethnicity in this, in the, in these perilous times. There are people who are pushing for a conflict, and unfortunately, it looks like they might very well get it, and it might very well be very close. These are indeed very perilous times, and these issues are at the, at the center of the, what is going to happen to this century? What are we going to bequeath to our children and grandchildren? Absolutely, I think a discussion like this has to focus on, on objectives in a, in a major way. What is it that we want? Actually, what we want is for people at the end of whatever it is that's going to happen to be able to live with each other. They don't even have to tolerate each other. They don't, certainly don't have to like each other. But they have to live with each other in some semblance of lawfulness that is applicable to all. Uh, in the Arab world, the Arab world is the part I'm more familiar with than the Islamic world, there used to be a unifying principle that applied pretty much across most of the century, certainly after the first war, and that is Arab nationalism. We grew up at a period of time where, where there was no really religious discussion of, of any, any sort that is meaningful except some fringe, you know, people who talk about religion and pray several times a day. The vast majority of, of the people did not have religion play a significant part in their life. So the unifying principle was indeed al-Uruba, Arab nationalism. This crashed completely in 1967. And for many reasons, not the least of which uh, the Arab governments, uh, active, active encouragement of what has come to be called the, the uh, fundamentalist uh, Islamic movements, these people were encouraged by, by the prevailing systems of governance, governance in the Arab world. And uh, in order to confront the leftist, secularist, cosmopolitan, informed, enlightened, whatever it is, group of people who up to, up to then had the uh, in, uh, dominance of the discourse, and uh, what we see now is a result of active cultivation by, by Arab governments in some kind of an understanding, uh, tacit at least, if not more so, with the United States, which had played a very dominant role in the post-1967 uh, order in the Arab world. Uh, the Bin Laden phenomenon is entirely an example of that, where, you know, those people were encouraged by by the, the American administration and the Saudi administration in order to do whatever it is that they'd done to the Soviet Union, and then they were cut loose by both patrons 
and we all are paying the price. So there is that, that we should not ever forget about that. The failure of the Arab system of governance has been very well outlined by the UNDP report, which you've heard about yesterday. And I think this, frankly, in serious discussion about what's happening in the Middle East, should receive 90% of the discussion, and Islam should receive 10, and I think I'm being generous with that. There are problems with lacks, lacks that they call lack of freedom, lack of education, lack of fund of knowledge in general, lack of emancipation of women, and all this adds up to failure of governance. These are the issues that we need to deal with, both as we deal with the, the, the inter-Arab relations and the relations between the Arabs and Muslims in general and, and the United States, serious issues of life. Now, religion could give you the tools, the theological or whatever it is, motivation that could rally up the people around you as you find out solutions. It is not in and of itself a remedy for these problems. Cannot be. How can we divorce economic realities from, you know, the life of people? Now, uh, I do uh, want to say something about the foreign policy considerations which we cannot possibly escape as we talk about the relations between the perceptions of the uh, responses of American the body politic to the Arab Islamic world. There is a definite perception of dominance and hegemony by America over the Arab Islamic world. There is a perception of that. People might disagree on the reality of it, but there is a perception widespread. It is more so today as we speak than it ever has been. Many factors play to, to bring this about. I would say specifically the last year, it has been the last, you know, year at least, has been what has been happening in, uh, of all places, in Palestine. With the contribution of Al Jazeera to the coverage, uh, the daily coverage of what's happening in, to the people in Palestine and the graphic that you miss here on uh, the United States TV, the graphic portrayal of the, the cruelty of life uh, under occupation for all concerned, uh, all that has tied in the behavior of the Sharon government to the United States with the encouragement of the Sharon government, of course. Uh, this, the United States has been saddled with that. That is part of why is it that why do they hate us uh, phenomenon? Uh, the Palestinian story has, in fact, not been a cause of terrorism, been used for that purpose. But if you seriously want to deal with terrorism, you must deal with the fundamental issue that motivates people across the Arab and Islamic world, and that's the Palestinian story. If you want to understand it, I think, well, you consider that it means to the Arabs and Muslims what the Holocaust means to the Jews. It is that level of intensity, and one cannot, dis, you know, cannot play with it. And we, at one point in time, must have the decisions made in this, no, no, I want to say in this town, I thought I was in Washington, in this country, uh, to actually uh, deal with this. And you cannot seriously expect to resolve, you know, these huge conflicts without dealing with this core issue. So much for the foreign policy. I want to, since I'm a professionally um, Arab-American now who, you know, has access to this sort of information and to what's happened to the Arabs and Muslims in this country, I do want to say that uh, 
first off, the census does not allow for the information to be gathered. So we don't know really how many Arabs or Muslims there are in this country. We just don't. It's not part of that. That was, that was a decision that was made in the 20s of last century. So, and we cannot change that now. So official statistics are not available. Uh, I would accept uh, uh, any kind of statistics, but I had accepted with the qualification, well, it is an effort. You know, it is not, it is not very valid and cannot be valid. I do want to agree with the statement that was made that, you know, how can you define Muslims by the people who go to, to, uh, to mosque or something? I mean, I don't know anybody really who goes to a mosque who is within my circle of acquaintances, and, and uh, we just don't. Okay, so if they're going to, then, then we become marginalized, which would make us feel at home because a lot of people try to have us marginalized. But that does not reflect the truth. Now, I want to say something about the government and the, and the civil society's response to uh, Arabs and Muslims in this country after the uh, September 11th uh, uh, attacks. You can, you can divide the response of the government perhaps into three separate segments. One is the, is the tone that was set. The tone was set very early in the, in the aftermath by the government, especially by the president himself and his high officials, in public, in a very public way, in, st in the visit to the mosque, and in statements made and his meetings with us publicly that were advertised to give the, the, the proper instruction, so to speak, to the country as how to behave. You know, we were invited four days after the event to, to the National Cathedral's memorial services, visibly. An imam, you know, was one of the people who prayed at that thing. So it was America at its best, giving a statement to the public, no, we're not like them, we are cosmopolitan, universal, and we have values we uphold. So this is the tone that was early set. I cannot say that this tone has been maintained because it has not been maintained. Now, the other thing is, how did, how did the administration uh, carry out its obligations to protect Arabs and Muslims in this country uh, who were subjected, as you might know, to attacks and, in fact, murder? There were seven cases of murder, and there were many lootings, uh, attacks on mosques and uh, Christian churches <coughs> and places of business, etc., etc. The answer is exceptionally well, exceptionally well. This has to go on record. The American government in its branch of law enforcement, all branches of law enforcement, has dispatched its obligations very well. And we say that in public, in private, and in Arabic, and in English. The third is what happened afterwards. The gradual, the gradual evolution of the codified erosion of the rights and, and uh, standings of, of people who come from a certain area who happen to be Arabs and Muslims. Actually, they happen to be both, you know, Arabs and Muslims mostly, and, and that manifested itself in some, you know, 8,000 cases that have been called in just for an interview. We want to chat with you, sort of thing. It was voluntary, but it was specifically designed for this group. There was, there was the Patriot Law, and you've alluded to, to, to several segments of it. There is an erosion in that 
of the of the what is has come to be accepted over the course of the past 50 years as civil liberties for all Americans. Civil liberties have been achieved at a great cost by so many heroic people in this country, uh, especially over the past 50 years, and they will not go away. They will not go away because some, some people did some dastardly thing in, in, in New York. They will not go away. We, we know that. But they will be attacked. Then they have been under attack. I'm sorry. Uh, two minutes? Uh, but they will they also be, be defended. We feel conf confident that they will be defended. There are many other manifestations of government intrusion, surveillance, etc., etc. And then there is the attitude of the of the uh, tolerant, the, the uh, non-governmental activities that really are of great concern to us. The discourse, which was respectful initially in public gradually became coarse, less politically correct, almost politically offensive, in fact, politically offensive, which was, you know, remind, uh, to, to, the, the kind of discourse that, that the country had in the 20s and 30s with, with attacks on the Jews by the likes of Henry Ford uh, and Coughlin, etc., is now applying exactly the same by respected figures, respected figures, Graham, Fowell, etc., etc., uh, saying the most terrible things, you know, like, you know, this guy was, uh, is a very evil and wicked religion. Franklin Graham said that. Uh, uh, Prophet Muhammad is a demon-possessed pedophile. You know, this in the Baptist uh, Convention, the child. So when you say these things and you get away with it, you get away with it, you make it more likely for the next wave of disasters that would strike the Arabs or Muslims to be accepted. If we tolerate that, then we would have eroded our own rights. We can't. Now, Farrakhan, as you know, was declared a pariah, really, when he described Judaism as, as, as a Jewish religion. Responsible people in this country should understand the significance of this public discourse. People who watch TV, there are professional Arab bashers on TV. They're all called experts, pundits, etc., etc. Say the most outrageous things. They say that no Arab or Muslim ever, you know, said anything about the uh, September 11 attack. They all tolerated it. Complete and total rubbish. Okay. So we have to face up to this obligation. Um, Can I stop you there? Yes, please. I'll be relieved. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, now. <laughs> now I'll pass the microphone uh, to a man who is politically incorrect but never offensive. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure you sympathize with me now tacitly because these are uh, three tough acts to follow, not only one or two. Uh, I want to start by thanking Princeton University for inviting me. It's a, a privilege. Um, this is my first visit, so I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, the, in Utah, where I live uh, and work for the last uh, 13 years, uh, there are three categories of the population. One referred to as Mormons, one referred to as non-Mormons, and a third referred to as Jack Mormons. Uh, my friends who know me best refer to me as a Jack Muslim. In a sense, I want these are non-observant Jack Mormons. Are, I mean, when, I, when they talk about Jack Mormons, they mean non-observant Mormons. 
I want you to know where I am coming from. I, it is not a religious perspective um, that I am worried about here, and anyhow, it has been represented uh, uh, in, in some of our discussions. Um, the other thing that I, I wish if we, that I cannot escape making is I wish if uh, the, um, the level of recognition of diversity, political, ideological, okay. ethnic, religious, in my part of the world, that is the, the, the Middle East and the Arab Middle East in particular, would be uh, would get uh, greater and that our familiarity with American, American diversity would be also enhanced because I find it somewhat ironical to come to um, America to uh, talk to people about the importance of understanding Arab and Muslim diversity or diversity in Arab and Muslim societies while the level of our understanding of the dynamics of American society is as modest as it is now. There is an irony there that I, I find impossible to, to uh, ignore. Uh, and I think there is something that's happening in, in that direction. Let me start by saying that I want to, to stress the broader or the dimension or issue of American responses to Islamic diversity. That is in the sense that uh, Professor Hyman referred to in the first part of his presentation. Um, um, even in our discussion here, um, I have been sort of noticing that there is a tendency to paint an image of a crisis, and I stress the word crisis, that either exists or is unfolding very quickly or being formed very quickly in relations between the so America and the so-called Islamic world with diametrically opposed positions that there is no escape from. Um, if you buy that argument, then you, will, you would say that America wants these countries in the Islamic world to provide basis, intelligence, control of the flow of money, uh, change the curriculum in their schools to change the value system and, and so on and so forth. Significant set of, you know, changes um, that uh, obviously they are, uh, uh, they find difficulty complying uh, with, uh, and the Muslim uh, states, Muslim groups, Muslim organizations on the other side have been asking America to understand the root causes of September 11th to exert significant or compelling pressure on Israel to settle the Palestinian problem, to um, agree to curb the evils of globalization, as some people called it, uh, and to refrain from military action against Iraq. If you compare the sets of you know, demands on both sides according to that characterization, you would, you would conclude that either the crisis is already with us and there is no way out of it, it's not just a matter of differences in communication or something that could be solved by having an American radio station working 24 hours a day uh, directed to a certain group of people or two glossy magazines on behalf of this Arab viewpoint or another published in New York or Washington, but something structural needs to be changed in that context according to, uh, to, 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 this, to this view. I personally 
um, don't have much faith in the argument of a, a crisis that um, that is uh, inescapable in, in that regard. We used that term so many times before, and the credibility of the term, you know, um, is, is very much, in, 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 to my mind, is in, in question. Think of this. Think of Qatar and Bahrain. Qatar and Bahrain have a media that rivals Gamal Abdel Nasser's media with regard to the tone of anti-Americanism and, and, and all that. Nonetheless, on the level of practice, one of them has the headquarters of the American Air Force in the region, and one of them has some headquarters of a, a, a fifth, fleet, fifth fleet or, or uh, the American fleet in, in the region. And you almost reach the conclusion that there is an element of substitutism. That is the, the talk, the tough talk, is a, a sort of a cover for a very different um, kind of, uh, of uh, posture in, in practice. Do they have streets? Do they have political streets? Yes, they do. Do they believe that what these political streets say dictate what they do in terms of policy? Not really. Is that, uh, does Saudi Arabia represent a tremendous exception in that regard? We saw the latest Saudi position that they would be ready to uh, cooperate with the United States only if the United States had a decision from the uh, or resolution from the Security Council uh, uh, supporting it. What I'm trying to say is, despite all the talk that I respect and understand about the political street, this political street has been also subjected to manipulation by regimes. The idea that regimes are helpless and caught in this inescapable dilemma leading to a crisis with the United States is something that uh, some people may desire, but whether it actually be the case or not, uh, I suggest that we should benefit from our sweeping generalizations in the past that saw these streets as, um, as, 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 as overwhelming. On the side of the United States, the, the quality of the analysis is not much better, in my judgment. I mean by that that you have uh, there's a lot of interest in the United States these days, for the last, you know, year or so, on what is the right sequencing of military strikes. You know, who comes second, who comes third, who comes fourth, and so on and so forth. Has a procedural quality to it, uh, not a conceptual quality uh, to it. And uh, I would even venture to say that the level of this, this, this kind of discourse uh, that is quite procedural and technical. It has a lot of focus on the quality of weapon systems and what they can do and cannot do and all of that tends in my mind to make the previous exchanges about the earlier Cold War more intellectual by comparison. In, in, in which, which is something that requires, uh, in my judgment, a reassessment and an event like this, and many others which are needed, uh, can play a role in both deepening and broadening 
the, the discussion and enhancing uh, its, its, its quality. Let me suggest to you very briefly, because of considerations of time, two, three things that I think should be changed in the American, or should be developed in the American understanding of these things. First, I think there's very little understanding of the ultimate mot motives of those who launched the September 11th. Um, not in terms of whether they have, um, you know, root causes of this or that uh, orientation, but the, the element of provocation was a very important ingredient in what they had. They did not think that they can defeat America militarily necessarily, but it was very important for them to create a climate of opinion in the ruling circles in America under which doing nothing would amount to political suicide. That is, they, they were keen on, I mean, you, you notice in the selection of targets, you know, that they, they had the, the, the casualties and, and, and all that. And this is an extension of what they practiced before on some local and domestic levels. What is the main foundation of the state? It's Haiba. It's Haiba. It's the sense of awe and invincibility that it is supposed to create among its citizens. Where do you strike the state in a way that would make that Haiba shaken and questionable? You strike uh, leaders in the middle of the day in front of TV cameras, you Sadat's case, you gun him down in that context. You, um, you, you, you show the, that the state is a, is a paper tiger, unable to do, to protect its leaders and key institution. Um, by doing that, the message is, why are you people afraid of America if America cannot protect these, these things. The element of provocation in that regard is, is very important. And the element of provocation leads to another element, which is overextension. That is to say, in response to the provocation, and in an attempt to seek a response against an enemy that you don't know where it is and how to reach it, then you, 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 you engage in, in that kind of uh, overextension that would backfire politically in the first place, more than just anything. I think this is something that's important to keep in mind in terms of what not to do. So in addition to the question of why do they hate us so much, there must be another question, which is what do they want us to do so that it would not be done and, and fall into the trap of, of provocation. Um, the, the other thing that, that should be buried uh, as a result of a thoughtful reflection on what happened, is this notion that um, the differences in strategies that Islamists pursue do not matter, that they are basically all the same. Uh, this, this kind of outlook that is lacking in, uh, in, in understanding of, of these differences. Of course, these differences matter. It, it, for me, it matters a lot whether somebody wants to express disagreement with me by writing a book or a number of articles or whether they resort to a submachine gun. Any day of the week, I would choose the one who, you know, relies on, 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 a, on the book or, or the articles. And there's no way to avoid um, uh, some element of openness, dialogue, recognition that 
difference with, with certain Islamists who do not resort to, uh, to, to violence. Uh, and the fact that, that all of them, all of these groups may want ultimately to have an Islamic state is, is really in that regard beside the point. The choice of the means matter. Um, and and the, the last thing, which I share with some other people who spoke in the conference before, is that it is, is that given um, the, 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 the fact that in a number of these countries in the so-called Islamic world have confronted the threat or the danger of uh, terrorism and violence before and confronted the challenge of political Islamist regimes and survived, it may be time to think about uh, working harder on reforming these kind of systems. These systems, when they are faced with a mortal threat, they don't accept any talk about reform because they say that they don't want to function under pressure. They don't want to give in to, to pressure. Given the fact that, that the record of Islamists in, in overtaking or, or bringing down these regimes has been extremely limited. Maybe it is time to discuss more seriously the issue of, uh, of, of political reform, even if it, uh, it seemed to offend uh, one political leader uh, or, or the other. And I would be glad if, the, if this stand would begin with taking a stronger position about the case of my friend Saadidin Ibrahim in, in, in Egypt. Uh, but with that, I will stop. And okay. Let's now move to questions from the audience. We have uh, a microphone coming to you right here. No, no, I know of her. The microphone's right behind you. No, she's very close friendly. We work together on these issues. Thank you. I have two questions which may be out of order because I was not here yesterday. So if you think they're out of order, just shut me up. The first question is, do any of uh, the panelists or the speaker think that the uh, terrorism, the 9-11 activity is the result of the extremists who want an Islamic world realizing and recognizing that they are losing the battle and about to be squeezed out completely and that this is a sort of a last-minute desperate uh, a bit of activity on their part. The second question that I would like to ask is that uh, in, in my ignorance, uh, I read in the newspapers that there are many, many new mo uh, mosques here in the United States. What I have no idea about, and I would like to ask if anybody has any estimate on it, is whether any of them or how many of them are uh, subsidized by Wahhabi money. Okay. 
Uh, why don't we take the okay. second question first? And, uh, would you have an answer to that? <clears throat> no, I think you'd have the answer about the mosque. Yeah. And I, but I'd like to tackle the first quest part of the question, which is uh, whether, whether these people have done this out of desperation and they think they have lost. I think it's probably not exactly the case. I think it is, it is an affirmation of what they have set out to do in the first place. These people have rejected the notion of the nation-state system that evolved across the Arab and Islamic world, and they felt that Islam is the unifying principle. By the time that they hit, they were escalating, actually, as you well know, coal and the embassies, etc., etc., after their attacks on so many other Arab countries. They felt that they have had enough wherewithal, enough ability to actually hit and, and deliver and then galvanize the, the Arab Islamic world and, and have them rally around them. I think it was a note of optimism on their part, and uh, I, I do agree that they have expected some kind of a response. I doubt very much that they expected this kind of an outcome. Yeah, yeah, with respect to the Muslims, this is a big issue right now in the media. I'm sure you may be referring to the article that came out on the September 30th issue of Time magazine, where they're looking at this whole phenomena of Wahhabi or Salafi influence in the prisons of the United States. This is one big issue that is coming up in the media. And of course, it's part of the larger issue of the Saudi presence in American Islam. Now, I think uh, there is a hype here in this regard because uh, Wahhabism has always been a marginal intellectual trend in Islamic history until the Arab Cold War when the United States and the other Western allies joined the Saudis in the fight to contain the Nasserite and the Ba'atis movement. That's the intellectual history of that whole exercise. So with the oil embargo, the Saudis benefiting from other Islamic groups elsewhere in the Muslim world were able to propagate their ideas. So when you talk about Wahhabism anywhere in the world, and I've written on this, I mean, you know, like you find that the Wahhabis became influential with the petrodollar state, the so-called petrodollar state. And they were able to use their money to spread their wings all over the world. Now, in the United States, Wahhabi influence has been limited to the in the United States because of two factors. One, as we just learned, as you learned from uh, uh, Professor Iman here, the one-third of the Muslims are African-Americans. Now, a small minority of these African-Americans flirted with Wahhabi ideas or Salafi ideas. And, of course, the majority of them are with Imam Wardin Muhammad, who came out of the Nation of Islam. So in that regard, they don't have any fascination. There were attempts on the part of Saudi Arabia to invite Imam Wardin Muhammad, but there is no theological influence on that score. The other point you have to take into account is that Many of the Muslims who came to the United States, as I pointed out to you, don't go to mosque. Now, there are some Muslims who are very serious Muslims, who practice Muslims, who would like to inflate that number. But that number is not the majority of Muslims in America. The majority of Muslims don't go to mosque. That's just the way it is. And uh, you do have uh, 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 resistance 
to any kind of Wahhabi or Salafi notion from those groups of Muslims. Now, then you also have Muslims who are Sufis, who suddenly do not traffic with the Wahhabi or Salafi school of thought. Now, what I have been saying to the media people who have talked to me, and there are people from NPR, from New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and all these Chicago Tribune, etc., who are interested in the just question you raise as part of the greater hype about the Saudis, is that the Saudis would like it, because that suggests that they are doing some work in America. But the reality is, I mean, there are some elements who may identify with the Saudis. And uh, you have a Saudi presence in the post-1973. But with the decline of the Saudi economy and the reaction of some of these forces I just identified, you have to really look at the Saudi Wahhabi influence in Muslim circles as real, but not as predominant as people would like to convey. Yes, but just as there are many Christians who practically never go to church but send their kids excuse to me, Sunday excuse school. Excuse me, excuse uh, um, can, can I limit it to two questions? And uh, let's let Professor Karawan answer your question. In fact, about I, would the like to make a comment on, I would like to make a comment, a brief comment on, on your first question. Um, uh, we are really talking about very small groups in number. That doesn't mean they, are, they cannot be as serious and dangerous as 9-11 and other, many other episodes have yes. suggested. But at the same time, we should not inflate the numerical significance and political significance of those uh, within the, the uh, you know, Arab or, or Muslim world at large. And any theorization that would argue that we can attribute to this huge collectivity called the Islamic world a single or near single purpose uh, would not be warranted in, in, in my judgment at all. Okay, Professor Haeckel has a question. Um, I'd like to thank all the panelists. And, um, this question is directed to Professor Hyman. Uh, thank you very much, first of all, for laying out what I think is a very accurate description of how Americans feel and what is and is not important to them. My question, and I don't know whether you have an answer to this, has to do with uh, jurisdictional issues uh, you know, in Guantanamo Bay and um, what the status of the prisoners is there and, and, more, and, and the other, which is of concern to many people in the Arab world and obviously people who care about civil rights in this country. Um, and the second question is related Hypothetically, well, not hypothetically, when you capture a Qaeda person, let's say number two man or number three man, the Yemeni, for example, who was just caught, um, what, what can you do with him? I mean, can you torture him if, it, if, you're, if he's in Guantanamo Bay to extract information from him? What, procedurally, what can you and can you not do with him uh, in that outside the United States? Well, I, I must say, I think that the administration in Guantanamo is making uh, new rules in, a, in an area where, with, with remarkable freedom. Uh, the administration's position is that they are combatants in an ongoing war and that you don't return combatants in an ongoing war to uh, freedom because they'll join the other side in an ongoing war. But the administration contends that they are not entitled to prisoner of war rights 
because, either because they were violating the rules of war in planning to attack civilian targets, which most of them were not, or because they were fighting out of uniform, because the Taliban didn't fight in uniform. I mean, they, they didn't have uniforms. The real purpose behind all of that leaves them, the administration announcing that these, that the people at Guantanamo are in a unique category, combatants in an ongoing war who have been captured and aren't entitled to prisoner of war status, which under the Geneva Conventions would give them various protections. They're still entitled to human rights protections, and that would mean that you could not torture them. And almost every country in the world, including the United States, has signed a treaty prohibiting torture. But they, are, I mean, I've, I've heard that they are sitting there, uh, and the most difficult thing for them is the belief that they may be there forever. And I think we probably encourage that belief in order to encourage them to talk. The, the real reason behind it all is twofold. One, not to release people who might attack again, and two, to get information about future attacks. Both of those are important purposes, and there doesn't seem to be any other leg more legitimate way to do it. I find, the whole, I find that whole thing uncomfortable on both sides. Uh, Rami Khoury has a question. Um, I'd like to thank the panelists also. And I think Brahim Karwan raised a very important question about motive. Um, what was the motive of these uh, terrorists who attacked the United States? And I'd like to ask uh, both Brahim and Professor Heyman, in your analysis, if, we're, if there seems to be something that's going to happen in Iraq, this incredibly uh, strong American policy now to change the regime um, in Iraq, that is likely to generate greater anti-American uh, sentiment in the Middle East uh, and to widen the pool of anti-Americanism um, in the sense of you're going to have the Islamists who are already critical of America, and now you're going to get a lot of people who are going to be critical of America, not because of troops on holy ground in Saudi Arabia, but because of, of pan-Arab uh, sentiments or imperial sentiments, whatever people want to call it. What do you think is going to be the consequence of any kind of American strike on Iraq, and is it, not, is it possibly going to deepen this cycle of, of violence and and counter-violence. Yeah, no, I, um, I think there, I think there's a real, there's, it's certainly conceivably, conceivable indeed, I think, somewhat likely that it will increase the cycle of violence. I think that there are, there is an argument on the other side. I don't, uh, I don't take much comfort from it. And the argument on the other side is that violence depends on hope as much as despair, and that if you are firm enough in your uh, exercise of power, you will deny the, the hope that something could be accomplished by violence and thereby discourage violence. I suspect that that is uh, held by, I suspect that that view is held by a number of those in the administration who are pushing uh, war on Iraq. I'm just guessing that. Uh, otherwise, I, there is certainly, a, the other side, is, which you stated, is certainly a very likely one, and that would be encouraging anger, despair, uh, and willingness to attack the United States with, in the one way you can, which is through terrorism. 
Um, I would say we need to distinguish between um, the motives of the actors uh, and the set of uh, exercises in analysis that followed, um, in a sense that um, you know, uh, you know, the issue of uh, let's say the issue take the issue of uh, the uh, unresolved nature of the Palestinian problem, which is at, you know identified as a major theme uh, behind behind what happened. It, it, it depends what, what do we mean and according to what, which terms. That's very important. I personally do not believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I personally do not believe that if, if Clinton, Arafat, and Barack uh, reached the agreement that they were heading towards uh, before, if they, that if they reached it, that this operation would have been suspended. I have, there is no evidence whatsoever about that. On the contrary, there is more evidence that it would have even become more assured because this would have been the ultimate sellout of the Palestinian cause, because, because, not because only it is only 96% or 95% or 90%, but because we have to accept the fact that there are political actors, you know, who believe in the notion of that international legality outcomes are not acceptable. You know, they said it. Some of us like to deny it and, and present everybody as if they are, you know, players um, in a two-state solution. In many cases, or in some cases, this doesn't, this doesn't exist. And there's another thing that sometimes we, co we confuse, which is um, the, the, the issue of um, the motives of the actors and the level of public hostility towards the United States after that. Those are analytically and factually uh, different. Uh, yes, if America wants to gain more support in the Arab political street and Muslim political street, a move towards a settlement between the Palestinians and the Israelis would help. Should that move reach the stage of giving Israel a detailed blueprint to abide by within three weeks or otherwise uh, America will suspend its aid, I doubt that this would be even a stable settlement that would result from that. So the thing got too politicized in my judgment uh, in the discussion that we have about it. Okay, we have uh, two questions in line, in the first row and then in the third row. And if I can ask you after you ask your question, could you please pass it to the man directly behind you? Okay. Uh, it's Professor Khurshid Ahmed, Pakistan. I would like to make two very short, quick comments and then two questions. First, escalation of war to Iraq, in my view, is going to be counterproductive. And throughout the Arab Muslim world, third world, even I fear Europe, the consequences would be, would defeat the purposes for which the war, succession of war is being claimed. Uh, my second observation is about a reference made again and again as if Saudi money to different mosques or organizations had been responsible for generating anti-American feelings or terrorism. I think that is too simplistic, unrealistic assumption. And I am worried when I hear from academic circles such a suggestion. There is hardly a link between them. and. 
Saudi money has not played, or even money from other Arab countries have played any role at all. In fact, those who had been involved in this act had nothing to do with Madrasa. They were highly educated, Western-educated, Western-based persons. So I think we should not adopt a too simplistic approach. My first question is to Professor Heyman, whose presentation I found very useful in understanding the American viewpoint, and I compliment him for that. But two questions agitate my mind. One is that he has rightly regarded terrorism as a crime, and as such, which invites punishment. But then it's not merely a crime, and even if ordinary crime, you don't stop at that, you go for causes of crime. But as far as terrorism is concerned, which is a political crime, but also related to political causes. And as such, can you fight such a crime only by military action or by punishing the criminal and ignoring the causes and factors responsible for prompting people to move in that direction? My second question relates to the new concept of preemptive strike and the new defin flexible definition of self-defense, which goes far beyond the Charter of United Nations, where a country merely on the perception of some threat could extend its war operations anywhere in the world. And if that is so, is it only the entitlement of USA or other countries also entitled to that? Thank you very much. Is that me? That's me. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> if, I, if I got uh, the questions right, Professor Ahmad, on the first one, I do think that we will only uh, substantially reduce terrorism when we worry about reducing the motivations too. Uh, and I think I, I was describing the tendency of the United States not to worry about motivations and we don't do it with Timothy McVeigh, and we don't do it with drug dealers, and we are not doing it much with terrorists now. But I think in the long run we have to worry about uh, the grievances, the association of the grievances with the United States, which is a separate problem, and attitudes towards terrorism, trying to uh, spread the, the horror of terrorism. Uh, you, you spoke of the horror of the scenes of of Israeli uh, actions in the territories of the Palestinian Authority. I think we should see that, and I think we should also see uh, children maimed and women killed by, by suicide bombers. I think the more we see of that, that I don't mean, every, I mean everybody, not just the United States sees of that, the better. Um, as to Iraq and preemptive strikes, uh, I, I think that it's, I think that the notion of, uh, I, I think you have to distinguish between preemption and prevention. You, you asked, I think, about prevention strikes. I think preemption when somebody is just about to attack you is not very questionable. It, after all, is the rule we use for civil society with regard to self-defense. You don't have to wait till I strike you to protect yourself, including using violence against me. If I'm about to strike you, you can protect yourself. I think prevention is a uh, very dangerous doctrine. I think it's contrary to what the world has said 
since the United Nations Charter, Article 2 of the United Nations Charter. Uh, on the other hand, I'm a little bit mixed about it because if I really thought that somebody who intended to use a weapon of mass destruction was rapidly building one and that it was better to stop the person now than take the risks later, I would think that weapons of mass destruction made a big difference. Uh, incidentally, that that issue arises in, if you'll forgive me, I teach criminal law, it arises in criminal law too. Sometimes a battered woman, who, a woman who's been battered by her husband, uh, kills him uh, before, well before, not during an attack, but well before an attack, and then and argues that this was the only safe time to do it, and that's a and that's a very plausible argument. That was the only safe way to protect yourself, not not favoring killing, but that there was no other way she could protect herself but to, but to act early, and that is a little bit troublesome with weapons of mass destruction too. I think uh, I'm mixed on I'm mixed on the issue. Um, if I can make an announcement to those of you who have just come in for the 11 o'clock session. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but uh, due to some cancellations, we've folded the 11 o'clock and the 9 o'clock session into each other. So uh, we're actually within moments of, um, uh, of wrapping up the entire conference. Well, uh, we, we can go on. We, we can go on, but the, there will be no 11 o'clock panel. Um, You've, you've missed the 11 o'clock panel, in other words. Okay, now uh, we have several questions in the pipeline. The gentleman in the third row, then the warden of St. Anthony's, and then if I could ask you, warden, to pass it on to the man next to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, most of our emphasis seems to be on Iraq, but uh, Professor Carawan had mentioned that much of the problem relates uh, to the failure of Arab governments. Uh, what is the U.S. doing? What should we be doing regarding these other governments? I, I didn't hear the, the question. Um, Professor Carawan had mentioned that uh, much of the problem uh, is a result of the failure of Arab governments, and this is not related to Iraq. Uh, what can the U.S. do? What are we doing, if anything? Um, I do not think that, the, that um, it would be desirable or possible for America to give a detailed blueprint for countries to sign on and, and implement. But uh, uh, at times, uh, signaling lack of support may, may have an impact. There is no certainty in these uh, situations. Uh, 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 something in, in, with regard to, I think, that, uh, that America and international financial institutions, which, re which um, America exercises a significant influence within can address, which is that issue of the unemployment among uh, the, the, the youth, the high percentage of unemployment among the youth, 25% to 22% and so on, and people who are, uh, who are educated, who are resentful, who are mobilizable, who, who are living in urban centers close to um, close to uh, centers of, of power and centers of disparity in wealth and income uh, distribution. Hence, they could explode or could be recruited for some... I mean, there is a climate. I don't buy the argument that there are 
root causes that mechanically lead to terrorism. You can resent American policy regarding a host of issues, but do not hijack an airplane to go uh, hit a building. There is no direct causal relationship between those. But the climate that I am talking about that may nourish uh, militancy and ex extremism, part of it has to do with this, this kind of, uh, of, of, of setting and, uh, and uh, perhaps a move in that direction and not just a focus on military reaction may, may give us an elaborate or more elaborate political strategy, not just a, a military strategic action. That's what I had in mind. Uh, Marek Goulding from St. Anthony's. This is, I think, more of an observation than a question, but I would be delighted by comments. Both Professor Hyman and Mr. Asali talked about the impact of 9-11 on the way the United States media treated Arabs and Muslims. And what you both said, especially what Professor Hyman said, was quite reassuring. But then I thought about, I live in Oxford, but I'm a long-term resident of New York City and therefore addicted to the International Herald Tribune. And one of the things the International Herald Tribune does is to reproduce cartoons and caricatures from a variety of newspapers in this country. And I think that the presentation of Arabs and Muslims generically in those cartoons is actually highly prejudiced. I'm not talking about cartoons of Arafat or Saddam Hussein, but cartoons of Arabs collectively would, I think, if they were cartoons of Africans collectively or of Jews collectively, generically, provoke a good deal of comment in this country, and rightly so. I've not seen any comment in, in the American media about the prejudicial nature of cartoons and caricatures about Arabs and Muslims. I'd like to comment on this. Actually, it is not at all politically incorrect to characterize Arab Americans or Muslim Americans in the worst way in the media both TV and print media. It is no more a problem for anybody. If you replace the word Arab or Muslim by, you know, Jew or Italian or, or, uh, or black, you would be just run out of your office within 24 hours, whatever your position is at that office. This is one of the major problems that we have here that, that has not been addressed. You know, I've addressed the, 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 the kind of discourse that is used by the Christian fundamentalist professionals. There is another Arab bashers club that exists in this country. And, you know, the Daniel Pipes, the Emersons, the Krauthammers, et cetera, et cetera, Kelly, you know. These people, what they do is exclusively attack Arab Americans, and it is okay. It is acceptable. You know, it, is, it is beyond political analysis. It's disparagement and factually incorrect. Actually, right now, they have elevated this to a new level of, 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 uh, of attack, which is to attack freedom of speech on campus. They have set up a website and a whole group of people by Daniel Pipes, funded by some nebulous authorities, to single out, you know, that professor at Harvard, this other professor at the University of Chicago, by name, to say, you know, these people are no good. They all happen to be, of course, Arabs and Muslims. Uh, so there is a, an frontal assault on freedom of speech in this country. Now, McCarthyism, you know, acceptable. Of course, it will fade 
it will face the same fate of McCarthyism. I don't know when, and I don't know what the war will, what kind of impact the war will have on that. But it is, is terribly, uh, you know, problematic. And this is other than the paid advertisement. There is an, a campaign, a paid campaign, to portray these sentiments uh, across, you know, all kinds of media that cannot be matched by the, by the whatever is available for us as Arab Americans or even Muslim Americans. And, you know, when the Saudis get involved in some kind of an ad campaign, you've heard what they do and they better not do that. But, you know, this is a huge problem. Freedom of speech itself is being attacked. If you are in any way, in any way, uh, willing to stand up and, and, and uh, challenge these things, then you are, by definition, pro-terrorists and potentially anti-Semitic, and perhaps you are a traitor to your country. Okay, the gentleman in the second row. Um, thank you very much. My name is Ahmed Shrais and Chantinis College, Oxford. My question really is to, to Asali and Karwan. Now, if the eternal message or the message of an, uh, a united Arab nation with an internal message to confront the Ottoman Empire and colonial power came to end in in 1967 proved to be really not a viable policy. Yes. I believe that the Islamist agenda will, cut, will have the same fate. It yes. will not succeed. And therefore, I'm asking, what is the future discourse? Yes, I think this is a great. I, I think this, there is a failing in the concept of a unifying principle in the first place. For it was an unrealistic to have the, all these Arab states and the Arab intellectual elite define a one nation as desperate as Yemen and Egypt and Morocco as one people. This is, this is not achievable, was not achieved under, under Arab nationalism and will certainly be much less practical under uh, Islamic things because, you know, you have a huge problem with minorities and the secular forces, which are still the intellectual elite of the Arab world. By the way, they are not talked about, they are not organized, but they still are the intellectual elite of the Arab world. Now, what will take place is obviously, uh, uh, I, I can't say, you know, obviously, and, and will take place. These are two strong words. What is likely to take place is the evolution of states. These states that exist now will remain. They are the ones who fought against Arab nationalism because that undermines the state apparatus in each and every state. And they are the same ones who will attack Islamic unifying principles on for the same reason. They want to survive, and they will survive. The states are exceptionally powerful in the Arab world still. What is needed is to develop within these states the mechanisms to open up, like we said on the new NDP report, and then establish cross-links on the basis of movement of people and goods and, 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 and perhaps have some visionaries come up with a, 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 a European community type of vision that will apply 50 years from now and lay the foundations for it shortly. We, I do not believe we can realistically challenge the states that exist now in the Arab world uh, successfully. So let's see what we can do with them. And we must do something with them. I agree with you fully that there has been a lot of exaggeration about the power and salience of um, uh, Islamist movements in a way that didn't take into consideration 
the ability of the states to cope with, with them in, in a variety of ways, not only repression, building alliances, uh, lots of, lots of, of, of other things. Uh, the, the dominoes that were expected to fall uh, didn't really uh, do that, and they are not likely to in the, in the near future. However, I'm increasingly uh, unsure about the whole logic of endism, you know, the one that sees movements coming to, to decisive ends. I, I would claim to you that there is, on the level of intellectual and political discourse, um, uh, a resurgence in the Arabist, Nasserist uh, uh, positions in the Arab world. It's not the old one that talked about central planning and about you know, social justice according to Arab socialism and doing away with borders, but regimes in many countries of the Arab world now, Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, uh, other countries in the Gulf, um, build political coalitions with Nasserists against the Islamists. That is to say, it is what they call reverse Sadatism. That is, if Sadat had a coalition with the Islamists against the leftists, now you have a situation where there is some leeway given, given to some Nasserist uh, types um, in the context of, of a coalition to curb the ideological or political presence of an influence of Islamists in, 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 these, in these societies. So declaring, as Fuad Ajami did, uh, pan-Arabism um, over, um, it depends which type of pan-Arabism are we talking about. And the same is true regarding uh, uh, Islamism. There are two types in my judgment that uh, will remain, but in, in varying degrees. There is one that is cultural and symbolic, which will always exist. So to sit in downtown Cairo and count how many women passed by with a scarf and conclude from that if the Islamic revolution is about to take over in Egypt or in Jordan or not is, is in my judgment, a, a waste of time. I call it touristic analysis. You know, but but the the question is, there will this will this type will continue as an influence, but the notion of an Islamist takeover of the state to implement a political ideological platform either will not happen, or if it happened, will not happen in a wave, but will happen in isolated cases. And the last two cases that we had didn't enhance the standing of Islamists since the Iranian revolution, that is, Pakistan, I mean, uh, Sudan, with its record that is very well known, uh, and, and Afghanistan, uh, which under the Taliban made the Sudan look good by comparison. So I am saying that, that this is, this, this is um, we will have a variation of it, but instead of the notion of something coming to a, a clear-cut end. I, I don't, things do not end in, in my part of the world. Uh, we have two questions in the pipeline. There's a gentleman here in the third row. And if I could ask you, after you ask a question, could you please pass the microphone to the, uh, to the lady in red? Sure. Uh, is it okay I comment on this question here, that what can Americans do? If it's short. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll try to be. Um, um, if we go back, in, I, I'm Chinese. I came to this country 50 years ago to attend graduate school. In 1900, there were so-called boxers, 
the boxers killed missionaries, European engineers, Chinese Christian converts, and there was an indemnity fund. Nine years later, in 1909, America gave up, or rather returned, one half of that money to Chinese government for them to send students to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, the West Coast. And But the result of the fruit of that great act was delayed by 40 years by the Versailles Treaty. It was in that treaty America, England, and France gave Germany's rights to Japan. Now, that has two consequences. One is that it, that was the very reason for the breeding and the emergence of Chinese communists, and they went back, they recruited those students in France, they went back, and we know the story, the history of that part. And the second is Japan's war uh, in China. Now, so we did not reap that result of American, that great act of returning the money till 1989 when Taiwan's reformation, this road to openness finally succeeded. So coming back to this question, what can America do? We have to understand the cause of these convulsions, killing, the boxers killing, and the September 11. It is not Muslims against America. Is that the same in China as in today? There are really two legacies in these societies, these closed societies. One legacy is this continued and unchanging poverty of reality that is now they must face. And the second is that they have a memory of their glorious past, what great they achieved. It's this clash of one legacy against the other. Somehow we must help them to go through this transition as the United States did in the returning of the indemnity fund. What can America do? It can do a great deal. We ought to establish a Marshall Fund, get Iraqi students to come here, Iran students to come here, North Korean students to come here. And meanwhile, what, what can America educational system do? They like to, they can do best to teach them, to educate we have an open society. We have an open education system. And this is the best way and practically the only way that we can help them to go through this transition. It is not an American of America versus Islam. It's a problem of Islam versus Islam. Yes. Okay. Uh, does anyone have a comment on the comment? <clears throat> I think this question of legacy is very important. Why is it that these particular people have done what it is that they have done at this point in time. It's this, this incongruence, this, this disparity between the image, the self-image of the Arabs and Muslims as, you know, descendants of a great, great culture, great civilization, etc., etc., and their present time of disconnectedness with anything good. That made them angry, and that made them susceptible to be to, to, to doing this sort of thing. And Islam here again served as a tool, as as a, a, a cultural avenue for expressing this anger, this concept of shahada, martyrdom. You see it all often. These people, to themselves, they were martyrs. To the to the people who sent them, they were martyrs. And to a lot of people out there, they are martyrs who are self-sacrificing because. That is the context, the cultural context that can be given to this. But without this discrepancy, uh, uh, you, you wouldn't have had that. There are other 
parts of the world, obviously, who are impoverished and, and are doing terribly, but they do not have a claim of a great civilization. So they are less likely to do this sort of thing. Yeah. Professor Carawan, do you have a comment? No. Okay. All right, thank you. I'm Dongwen Shahdi from the University of Oxford, although I feel like a Christopher uh, piece right now. I wonder, since we're, we have a little bit of extra time, if you would indulge me and let me allow me to return to an earlier uh, um, comment which was made by uh, Merrick Goulding, because I think it was so important, and, and uh, Ziad Asali's response was actually quite worrying, but I think it deserved more attention. And I just wonder whether the panelists would, uh, Professor Hyman, if you also would comment on this particular phenomena, um, which is manifested by the appearance of uh, numerous cartoons and so on that are uh, very uh, negative portrayals of Arab, Arab Americans, uh, which are calling Arab bashing, and the lack of a response, or so it seems, amongst the American public to this, uh, this particular phenomena. I mean, I find that particularly worrisome, and I just wonder if the panelists wouldn't comment a bit further for our own um, uh, knowledge. Uh, I'm not sure I got all the questions. Let me respond, and you may say, what about something else? I do think the cartoons are offend. I think the cartoons are offensive, and uh, you know maybe I should have said something about it, and other people should say something about it. I think the uh, portrayal of Arabs in cartoons remind me too often of the portrayal of Jews in Nazi cartoons, and I think they are, and I think they're offensive. I don't find our major newspapers offensive in their coverage. I mean, I, I, we may disagree about this, but I, 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 think they, I think they have written sympathetically and persuasively about the, the problems and the wrongs of detention. I think they've written sympathetically and persuasively about hate crimes. I don't think that they have uh, generalized in terms of uh, blame or, or something like that, but perhaps you do. Uh, actually, actually, you know, we have to dissect this a little bit in, in the public discourse. You know, an open society, open media, everything is said. I mean, everything is said. What is problematic about what's happening now is the degree of tolerance we are showing to what is being said. And it is said on TV. Those of you who watch TV, you know, horrible things that are being said about these talk show host people and, and, and actually editorials also in, you know, editorials in, in, in uh, one day I woke up with three different editorials in the same Washington Post issue. Terrible stuff that they, they, they would, would write and that's not consistent. I think in the main, the mainstream media, print media, print media has been responsible. There have been serious lapses but these lapses outside the main media exist in abundance and they are unchallenged. Like I said, you know, when, when, when Farrakhan says something, he's completely vilified and he's a pariah. These people say these things and this, this is public. This is public speech. It is tolerated. And those who tolerate that now about this minority that is vulnerable now will see dreadful consequences for this degree of tolerance should another huge incident take place. Yeah, I, I, th I just I just want to say that uh, in the you have the different levels of coverage. 
you have TV which is more visual and more effective. If you watch last night, hardball, you will see on TV the, the debate between uh, Professor Hamid, you know, uh, Habashi at yes. Columbia University and people like Daniel Pipes, you know, who have created this campus watch where they list, as he was saying. I mean, it was a very interesting discussion because what happened really is you have people now who are in the academy or outside of the academy who wants to control the intellectual activities of their colleagues. I mean, you know, like, uh, so, I mean, uh, it's a very interesting development American uh, academy, but this is likely because of these contests of will, ideological contests of will in terms of support for one party or the other overseas. And I think there's a new development. And it's a beginning of an intolerance. Uh, one of the, to the credit of George Bush, as uh, my colleague pointed out here, he did build a firewall protecting the American Muslims, something that Woodrow Wilson didn't do for German Americans. And FDR, with all his moral authority, didn't do for Japanese. So there is, America has moved pro, uh, progressively forward. Now, there are people who dispute this. They say, well, George Bush is dealing with an America that is globalized, whereas these other people were living with provincial America before FDR, you know, went into the war. Uh, so the, the, the reality here is, in the American media, Muslims and Arabs feel that they are being subjected to attack. And what he says with regard to response is because of, you cannot say anything now against Jews in the United States. If you do, you lose your job, period. And if you say the same thing against black Americans now, you suffer the same fate. And the, this has been very clear to, uh, what's the name of that great guy who made that statement about football or basketball? Oh, uh, Jimmy the Greek. Jimmy the Greek. All of you know Jimmy the Greek destiny. That was so, not an academic position. It, that was not an academic, it was in the media. So what has happened, the, Actually, this is a good barometer of the lack of political power in America for Muslims and Arabs. And if we go by the example of the Jews, who were not powerful politically in this country before World War II, and we have evidence to show that, I have said this in other places, black Americans certainly didn't have any influence until after the civil rights movement. Now the Muslims are the new target, and they use bad language. In America today, they call Arab Americans sand niggers. That's how they describe Arabs, sand niggers. Who does that? Where? It's in the media. They use it. They, they talk about it. No, on, on what? It's not on national television. It's on, what? Is it on a, a cable state, a remote cable <laughs> yes. station, or what? It is on cable station. The comedy stuff is full of it. Professor Karawan has a statement. Michael said at the very beginning that uh, I can be frank and I, I want to prove to you that he's right. Um, uh, and in that I sometimes part company with uh, a number of my fellow uh, Arabs and fellow Muslims, which is this. I very much agree with you that this is a horrendous thing that you're referring to. It should be denounced in, in the loudest possible way, in the most effective way possible. But I also say to my friends from my part of the world that it is important to have the moral courage to admit that in our media and across in, in, in many circles, not just in one trend or one direction, there are also horrendous generalizations about groups of people by the virtue of their uh, ethnicity or religion 
or civilizational affiliations. We have hundreds of books under the title Al-Gharb Al-Kata, Al-Gharb Al-Istimari, Al-Gharb Al-Munhal, Al-Gharb Al-Misharif, you know, all of that. If we want to denounce these things, not if we want to, in addition to denouncing these practices that you are referring to, we should have the moral courage and commitment to also denounce it when it excludes and dehumanizes other groups of people and assumes that they are unified entities that could be denounced in, in whole. If we don't do that, our case will be uh, very suspect. I, I need to say something, just one thing about I think this is an exceptionally important point. We should have the courage sure. to confront the nonsense that is prevalent across the Arab media, etc., sure. et and through the authorities that sanction that. Sure. I want to tell you this. Recently, I was in Cairo two weeks ago in this foreign minister's meeting, whatever, and I told the foreign minister of Egypt and the, 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 the national security advisor of the president separately the same point about Saladin Ibrahim that you mentioned. The, the context that I put it in, you might like, which is, here you are, all the Arab world is proclaiming poor Arab Americans, poor Muslim Americans are suffering discrimination, they can't get out of their homes, and here you are doing this in your country to an Arab American. You know, what kind of a position, what kind of a moral position are you putting yourself in and putting us in? Professor Haeckel has another question. saying this because uh, on almost any street corner in the Arab world you can buy the protocols of the elders of Zion and on the front cover you have I mean Nazi uh, caricatures of, of Jews mm -hmm. um, and, and that are accepted and in fact if you look very closely I mean uh, many Arabs would fit that caricature so it's, it's very bizarre and uh, situation we find ourselves in um, and one of the kind of tragic comic aspects of the, this, this type of caricaturization is that Sikhs have been the, at the receiving end, yes. uh, Indian Sikhs, <laughs> have been at the receiving end of, uh, of much of this uh, discrimination because Americans, in their ignorance, have kind of a Disney-like uh, 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 um, image of a Muslim with a large turban and a very big beard. And Sikh uh, turbans and, and beards tend to be much bigger than Muslim turbans and beards. So... Uh, and a few Sikhs, I think, were killed, in fact, on, on that, um, because of that uh, stereotype. Um, and, and when I was in India recently, many Sikhs actually, um, and this is something that struck me very strongly, many Indians, and especially Sikhs, um, were afraid to come to this country um, because they uh, don't want to be humiliated. Many of them are forced to take their turbans off once they reach JFK. Um, and, and I think... Uh, and, and I would like to also add a personal anecdote. I was on the O'Reilly show uh, soon after September 11th. He's one of the more odious um, talk show hosts uh, on American television. I think he's on the Fox News Network, which tends to be yes. of the more odious of the, of the various news networks here. And O'Reilly uh, basically set me up. I mean, he said, I, when I was saying that most Muslims or the Qaeda the, the type Muslims are a small minority, while I was saying this, he was showing on, on uh, people on their screens were seeing Muslims tearing up and burning American flags and burning effigies of, of, um, of, of uh, Americans. So he, he was contradicting what I was saying with the images. And uh, then, uh, in addition to calling me crazy and a liar and so on, um, 
went on to vilify Muslims and Arabs. And at the end of the whole show, once the cameras shut down, I said to him, you know, you're, you're, you're a peddler, uh, you're peddling blood and you're peddling violence, you know. You should really be more conscientious in the way you, you talk about what's going on in the Arab world. And his response to me was, I'm just pushing a story. That's all it is. So don't, don't take it so seriously. Uh, so there's, anyway, I mean, the disgust, I mean, disgust doesn't even begin to <laughs> express my feelings about how crude some of these media people can be. So I end there. Uh, Mr. Tayyip Khan has a question. There's the gentleman in the tie here. We have been talking about the uh, Islamists and the states. I'd like to talk, uh, I'd address us to the question of the populace, the mass of people. In a local mosque, um, I asked some people a uh, question, and I said, the Palestinian uh, uh, suicide bombers go ahead and kill half a dozen Jews and damage a little property. The retaliation kills 20 or 50 Palestinians. The retaliations usually cause an immense damage of property in, the, in Palestine. And why do they continue doing it repeatedly? And uh, I was shocked. They, they gave me an answer that stumped me. They are doing the right thing. It's up to it's the hands of God what the results will be. You never know what they will be in the long run. Any comments? No comments? <laughs> well, the choice of God in explaining away human behavior is as old as history. So many crimes have been committed in the name of your God against his God and the other God. That is one of the reasons that I find phrasing, framing the questions we fa face in terms of a religion troubling by definition. Because the other guy who, who believes his own God, he really hates your God and that's the end of the story. What we need is discourse, dialogue, identifying issues that you can put your hands upon, not metaphysical discussions. Okay, and maybe we can make this the, the last question here, the gentleman from St. Anthony. Uh, let me be provocative. Um, if the Arabs and the Muslim when, want to earn the respect of the West and other nations, therefore, don't you think, the panelists, apart from Professor Haim, that they should get rid of their ansarias? Their own? Ansaria. Oh, yeah. The Arabs are best nation, Arabic yes. language is the yes. best language, poetry yeah. is the best poetry, music, food, <laughs> Islam is the best religion, <laughs> yes. everywhere. Now, this is the time to rethink yes. your value system, yeah. to take on board the rest of the world mm. on equal terms, in order that you would be accepted on equal mm -hmm. terms. Hitherto, you have been treated as, what is this, one <laughs> in these terms? Yeah. So I want your reflection. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, Dr. Sami? I could, uh, I could deal with that. Actually, actually, it is a dual system of values that exists in the same brain at the same time. One says that we are the, the best, like you mentioned, best language, best this and best that, and the other is that we're the worst. We're no good. Everybody's better than us. We're defeated on every level. These two concepts, self-images, exist in the same 
brain, the same culture at the same time. So we have to sort out these things. Actually, it's easy. We're neither the best nor the worst. We're just regular people, like everybody else. If we sell ourselves on this concept and sell the world on this concept, we would have gone a great length in order to improve both the dialogue and the conditions. Okay. Yeah, on that note, I'm not optimistic say? soon that uh, some powerful or significant group in the Muslim world will say that Islam is a relatively good religion. <laughs> okay, that's a good note on which to close. Uh, thank you very much for a very engaging uh, conversation. All right.